Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, this is Everything Else, the culture podcast from the Financial Times. My name's John Sonia. And I'm Griselda Murray-Brown. And we're both culture journalists here at the FT. So, by the time you'll be listening to this, John and I will be far away having doubled our body weight eating mince pies and Christmas pudding. John, what are you going to be up to? What are you doing for Christmas? Uh, staying in London, have lots of family here, and I'm just actually negotiating whether I'm allowed to go to Arsenal on Boxing Day, which will really annoy a large <laughs> chunk of my, of my yeah, close family. So you're not going to Arsenal with your family? No, no, it wouldn't be. Enough family come. time. No, they never come. They would really not want to come. <laughs> um, okay, so on today's show, we have a short story by David Saloy. Something a bit different for the festive period. Yeah, yeah, it's different, but it's not very festive, I'm afraid. It's called Pig Killing Day. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so each year, Life and Arts uh, commission a short story. Laurie and Kite and Rebecca Rose, our books editors. Last year, we had Lydia Davis write one. People that don't know, David Saloy is um, a Booker Prize shortlisted author for All That Man Is. Uh, he was also named one of Grant's Best of Young British Novelists in 2013. So he's definitely one of the kind of leading writers of his generation. Luckily for us, he wrote us a short story and he's also read it out for us. Yeah, he went into the studio in Budapest, recorded the story, and here it is. We hope you enjoy. Pig Killing Day I have a hangover on Pig Killing Day. I wake in the dark with a headache and start to put on my clothes. It is 5.30 in the morning. Outside there is a crud of snow on the empty street. Snow is still falling through the light of street lamps and from somewhere I hear the sound of tyres whispering over a thin layer of snow, moving slowly. There are sets of tracks in the road, black and dark grey and grey, where other vehicles have passed earlier while the snow fell. With my hat pulled down to my eyebrows, I wait at the place where I said I would meet Attila, wondering whether this is in fact something I want to do. I've been telling people about it for a week, I've been invited to a pig killing, I've been saying. I'm going to a pig killing. And now it is pig killing day, and I wait, feeling an odd sense of distance from my body as I stand there, despite the fingers of cold that find me through the layers of my clothes. Snowflakes stick to the wool of my hat. When Attila arrives, I get into the car. It is warm and I take off my hat, which is wet with melted snow. Morning, I say, without looking at him. He starts to drive. Attila is a skinhead. He looks like a possible neo-Nazi. In fact, he is a very sweet, kind-hearted man. His sister, Kotalin, my wife, says she worries about him, that he has a problem with intimacy. He is certainly very self-contained and solitary. Like many people his age, he spent a year in England. He worked as a motorbike courier. But unlike most of them, he didn't like it and came back. 
Now he makes money online somehow, trading stuff. How are you, he asks eventually. I'm okay, I say. Fine, looking forward to it. He laughs dryly. You've never been to one of these before? No, I say. It takes ten minutes to leave the town. The streets thin out, spaces open up, dark forecourts, superstores with empty expanses of parking, one selling tiles and other sports equipment, an illuminated BMW dealership, and then the first fields, and we are driving through the dark countryside. I think Attila is probably driving too fast, but I don't say anything. The road feels frictionless under the wheels, as if we were driving on ice. Very slowly it is starting to get light. A sort of greyness has replaced the black beyond the headlights. I notice that I can make things out as we drive past them, especially pale things. The whiteness of a frozen lake, for instance. And that in places a faint horizon has appeared. A soft gradation in the flat darkness. Today is the shortest day of the year. I wonder whether to mention this. Attila is staring fixedly at the oncoming road. The snow's letting up, he says, and then loses control of the car on a tightish left turn. The car suddenly starts to move in an odd way. It feels very long and heavy as it spins. There isn't enough time to feel much fear or alarm, to feel much more than an opening jolt of adrenaline, and then it's over. It's over before either of us has really understood what is happening. We sit there, facing the wrong way. There is a woman standing at a bus stop, one of those country bus stops with nothing else around, who must have seen the whole thing. Tactfully, she looks away. It is light now, I notice. Trees are silhouetted against the sky in what I assume is the east. The snowscape that has appeared is purple, mauve, turquoise. The engine is still running, and Attila, obviously slightly shaken, puts the car into first and performs a cautious U-turn in the road. I do not say anything. I do not want to seem to be criticising him. He is sort of my host today, after all. I assume he'll drive more slowly now, anyway. How much further is it, I ask after a few minutes, as if nothing had happened. Not far, Attila says, taking a hand off the wheel to stroke his chin. Not far. The village is stretched out along a straight road, just one house deep on either side. We park next to a metal fence. From the chimneys of some of the squat little houses, smoke rises against the pale sky. There are some bare trees. Our feet squeak in the dry snow as Attila leads me to a rusty gate and opens it. On the other side of the gate, a well-worn trail of footsteps in the snow takes us to a sombre yard where some people are standing around in the thinning twilight, as though waiting for something. We advance across muddy snow. I walk awkwardly with my hands in my pockets. Attila starts to greet the people who are standing there. He introduces me ineffectually to some of them. He is not very socially adept. I catch some names, Deja, Jolt, Sobolch. I'm shivering. I suspect I'm not properly dressed for this occasion. The cold out here seems more intense, more immediate than in the town. The people in the yard are mostly older men. I exchange nods with a few of them. Most of them have facial hair of some description and dark little eyes. One seems to have come straight from a petrol station night shift. He is still in a green nylon mole uniform. Another seems to be wearing two tracksuits, one on top of the other, the trousers tucked into Wellington boots. 
Most of them are wearing hats or peer out from inside hoods. They're like something out of Bruegel, I think. And I remember, as I think that, the painting that I saw in Brussels once, the census at Bethlehem, in which Bruegel set the New Testament story in a snowy Netherlandish landscape in the mid-16th century. And in particular, I remember the pig that is being slaughtered in the foreground of the picture, a man sitting astride the struggling animal with a knife, addressing himself to its throat, while a woman in an apron holds a long-handled pan, ready to catch the spray and then the steady flow of blood. It is perhaps the first thing you notice in the teeming surface of the painting, the pig's open mouth, its long snout, the implied squeal of terminal terror. Another man is taking beer from a big snow-covered barrel. Behind bare trees, a red sun sets. There is a barrel here, too, with snow on it. The snow has started to fall again, prettifying a pile of tractor tires. It falls slowly through the air, sticking to the shell of a cannibalized car. I dread the moment when the pig will actually die. I dread the terror in its eyes the terrible sounds it will make. My fear is that there will be moments of horror that will stay with me forever, that I will never be able to put out of my mind. Attila's friend Maria says hello to me. I know her from the town. I often see her emerging from the American nail salon or trotting down the high street laden with shopping, her iPhone to her ear. She seems a strangely urban and contemporary figure to encounter here until I remember that this is her family's house. Her family are our hosts today, and she is working the yard, saying hello to everyone, to the hirsute men with their hands in their sleeves, and making small talk, while at her shoulder a pink-cheeked old woman in a quilted coat holds a tray of mulled wine. Maria hands me a mug and thanks me for coming. Thank you, I say, and then, trying not to sound anxious, what happens now? We're waiting for my father, she says. She moves off to hand out mulled wine to the other men. Warming my hands on the mug, I look down at the deep red liquid. There is a nail-shaped clove floating in it. Of course, I think, the dying pig in Bruegel's painting is meant to remind us of the way that Christ will die. So as well as being a precise detail of daily life in December, the pig in the picture is also a sort of metaphor or symbol, one that will be made vivid and alive for me for the first time by what I'm about to experience here. I'm inside with Attila when the pigs arrive. We're in the house trying to keep warm, in a large room with two long tables and a huge tiled stove that is just starting to emit some warmth. On the tables are numerous two-litre plastic bottles of what seemed to be mineral water but turned out to be home-distilled parlinkar. Attila has just poured us each a huge shot of it. It is not yet eight in the morning, and I am already quite drunk, when there is some sort of commotion in the yard. A fairly new, dark green Nissan Navara pickup truck has just arrived, honking its horn and wheel-spinning its way over the snow and ice. The men who have been waiting for it surge forward as the driver's window slides down, and he shouts at them to unload the pigs. They drop the tailgate, and there they are. The first thing I notice is that there are two of them. The second thing I notice is that they are already dead, lying there on the black plastic in pools of blood that also looks almost black. The third thing I notice is that they are surprisingly hairy. <laughs> <laughs> 
They're already dead, I say to Attila. Sure. How come? You're not allowed to kill them here anymore, he says. No? European rules, he explains. And then adds in a mutter, they want to destroy all our traditions, fuckers. I don't say anything. I am undoubtedly relieved to have been spared the experience of the actual slaughter, and also now somehow disappointed. This is supposed to be a pig-killing day, and yet I have not seen and will not see any pigs actually being killed. The men have tied ropes to the pig's legs, and now they shout to the driver, and he edges the pickup truck forward while the men hold the ropes and the pigs slide off the back and drop heavily into the snow. How did they kill them, I ask, taking more interest in the mechanics of it than I did previously, when it was something I didn't want to think about. Shot, Attila says, pointing. And indeed I see now that the pigs have holes in their heads, neat bloody holes near their ears, which are floppy and almost cover their eyes. One of them, poignantly, has a shitty arse. It is perhaps the only thing that really brings home to me the fact that these heavy objects were alive not so long ago, an hour ago. And I am not exaggerating when I say that the sight of it nearly brings tears to my eyes. Maria joins us, watching with satisfaction, as the men start to drag the pigs away from the pickup truck, leaving swathes of mud in the snow of the yard. The pickup truck also moves away and pulls up next to a shoulder-high wall of frozen logs. Two men get out and slam the doors. One of them is Maria's father. He is the only man there without facial hair or a hat. It's hard to say whether he's ugly or handsome. Handsome, I think, even though he has a head like a misshapen potato. When he is told who I am, he slaps me on the back. His eyes are slightly nuts. We shake hands, and his handshake is what you would expect. It hurts. He explains that there was only supposed to be one pig, but in the poor dawn light the marksman first shot a young male by mistake, and young males are inedible, he tells us, because the testosterone in their bodies gives them an unpleasant flavour. Maria laughs, and her father winks at Attila and me. The only thing to do with this one now, he says, is feed it to the dogs. The next few hours, the hours of the morning, are spent first depilating and then dismembering the pigs. While Maria's father was having a word with us, the other men were assembling equipment, including two old-fashioned blowtorches, which they now use to burn the hair off the pigs. While one man directs the flame, another scrapes at the side of the pig with a spade. It is hard, slow work. We are encouraged to take a turn, and while Attila works the flame, sometimes overdoing it and charring the pig's side, I labour with the blunt spade. The snow around the carcasses melts and puddles of blood quietly form. The smell of the burning hair as it crackles and vanishes in the flames is bitter. It is broad daylight now in the yard. The sky has clouded over and the air is cold. It has stopped snowing. I lean on the spade and breathe as two men struggle to turn the dead pig over. It seems, at first, that it will take all day to scrape the hair from these two dead pigs. You work for ten minutes to scrape away a dispiritingly small patch, and then someone else takes over, slowly uncovering the yellow skin while you just stand there with your hands in your pockets and the sweat on your forehead, or go into the house and drink. There are enormous quantities of alcohol in there 
Emerging from the house after one such break, the scene in the yard seems totally hellish. The flames, the smoke, the puddles of blood, the dark figures working with demonic fervor on the passive forms lying in the mud, the toothed metal of agricultural machinery, the bloody footprints in the snow. Standing there on the concrete step, I suddenly feel very cold. I start to shiver and I'm about to go back inside where the tiled stove has started to produce some serious warmth when the man in the petrol station uniform offers me a spade. And then once again, I'm scraping at the fat side of a hairy, dead pig while another man, the one wearing two tracksuits, holds a flame to it. The pig's hairs shrivel and ignite in the flame. I scrape away the burnt hair from the scorched, disintegrating skin. The pig's legs wobble when I scrape. Liquid trickles from its open mouth. The man wearing two tracksuits tells me to scrape harder, that I'm not scraping hard enough. And so it goes on. Some of the men have somehow made a fire in the yard. One of them has a wide, well-trimmed moustache and is wearing a hoodie under a puffer jacket with the hood up. He now signals that the water in the iron tub that they have set over the fire is sufficiently hot, and four of the other men drag and shove and heave the larger pig, the female, into the tub. While I am watching that, Maria's father offers me something, a small conical object containing colourless liquid. Drink it, he shouts, as people start to laugh at my hesitation. In his other hand, he has one of the two-litre plastic bottles of homemade palinka from inside. I take the object and drink the liquid, which is indeed palinka. It makes me wince, and there is more laughter. Do you know what that is? he asks, taking back the conical object and holding it up to my face. It is dark brown on the outside and pale on the inside. It's hard to say what it's made of. I shake my head, still feeling the heat of the drink. Pig's toe, he yells, then pounds my back as he moves off through the steam to fill it for the next man. Somewhere in the steam, the sow is being scrubbed. The work of scraping the hair off the pig seems to be over, and thankfully I have no part to play in the scrubbing. So after a while I turn away and start to wander up the long yard. I walk past agricultural machinery and something huge entirely hidden under plastic sheeting. Further on there is a partially frozen pond and a hut full of whimpering poultry. There are gnomes and other garden ornaments, some of them damaged. The yard ends in a chain-link fence, on the other side of which white fields stretch away. I stand there for a minute, listening to the chickens whimpering in their filthy hut. My feet feel frozen. Fuck this, I think, and walk back to the house. Inside it is warm, it seems warm at least. The stove emits waves of heat, heat that stuns you when you first enter. I hold my hands to the hot brown tiles. The walls of the room are made of rough pine tongue and groove material. The beamed ceiling presses down. I sit at one of the tables and loosen my scarf, a flimsy lamb's wool thing, not up to spending all day in the freezing outdoors. My hat is also insufficient. There are puddles of melted snow and muddy footprints all over the floor. Just the mud everywhere is starting to depress me. The amorphous spaces full of mud and snow that I can see through the small square windows set very low in the wall. Figures moving about out there in the dead stillness of the white day. I want to get back to swept streets, wide pavements, high facades, well-heated shops. 
I imagine with terror a world where those things do not exist, where there is only this muddy, freezing place and others like it. What would it do to your head to live in such a world? The world, in fact, of the census at Bethlehem. It occurs to me that my own grandfather emerged from a world like that. He was that very 20th century phenomenon, the first member of his family to go to university. He was probably the first member of his family to go to secondary school, the first member of his family to be properly literate. He grew up, like most of the population of Europe at the time of his birth, in a village not unlike this one, strung out along a straight road, a few dozen houses with fields behind them. The only other building was the church, in which on Sunday mornings, the people who lived in the village heard talk of sowers and lost livestock and mustard seed and unweeded fields, and they knew that what they were hearing was about people like them, was not vaguely pictorial, but was all too vividly and precisely about their own world and their own lives. The world of the census at Bethlehem, which less than a hundred years ago still was the world. On each of the tables are a few of those two-litre plastic bottles of Parlinka, the old mineral water bottles with blue plastic tops and the labels soaked off leaving traces of glue. Not knowing what else to do, I pour myself some. I'm still squinting tearfully through the fuck-off heat of it when Maria comes in. Oh, here you are, she says. Yeah, I whisper hoarsely. We were looking for you. She sits down opposite me. She is tall and angular. Her face is angular too, except for the hazel eyes which are soft. She is one of those people who looks weirdly mature at twenty and then hardly changes for the next forty years. She has a kind, unsentimental face. She is wearing plenty of makeup. The sleeves of her jacket fringe her hands with soft fur. Having fun, she asks. Sure. How's Cotta? I haven't seen her in ages. She would have liked to come today, I say. Work? Yeah. We sit there for a few moments. She has a feather in her hand, is fiddling with it. The ringing sound of hammers striking metal sings in the frigid air outside. Whose house is this, I ask, just for the sake of saying something. Actually, it doesn't seem to be a proper house. There is this dining room where we are sitting, with table space for 40 or 50 people and a single small set of antlers on the wall. There is an unheated toilet and a high ceiling room which I went into earlier by mistake, the walls white tiled up to shoulder height like a morgue, as if it sometimes needs to be hosed down. My uncle, she says. Which one is he? The one with the duck. I know who she means. A man in a white coat like a doctor's with a green-headed mallard under his arm. He wasn't doing much work, just watching from a doorway and stroking the mallard's head with his finger. Yeah, the duck, I say. What's that about? It's a sort of pet. He's not going to eat it. She laughs. No, she says. And then, not today, anyway. You must have been to loads of these, I say. Of course. In my family, we do this every year, she says, meaning the pig killing, I suppose. It's a tradition. I know. This is what winter is all about, she smiles. When I think of winter, she says, this is the first thing I think of. This and Christmas. Sure. What about you, she asks. What's winter for you? I shrug and say I don't know. Leaving work in the dark, packed shopping malls. Eczema, she laughs. Eczema. From the heating, I say. It makes the air very dry. I think that's the explanation. 
I think it's difficult to understand, she says, living in a town, working in an office, how much life used to be dominated by the seasons. Absolutely. More, she asks, picking up one of the two-litre bottles, one which is nearly empty now. Maybe I shouldn't. I think you should. Okay, then, I say. I've always slightly fancied her. She pours me some more and some for herself. We drink. I admire the way she takes the shot with a slight tightening of her mouth, but without any tears or spluttering. I try and do as well as her and almost succeed. My eyes mist over for a moment and there's a little squeeze of nausea in my throat. What I like about this, she says, is it's such a family day. I assume she's still talking about the pig killing and I say, it is. The whole family's involved. Family and friends. Yes. What else is like that, she asks. I mean, really. After a moment's thought, I say, weddings? Well, okay, she says, but today everyone's equally involved. You know, it's no one's special day. It's for everyone. And I mean, it's very fundamental. It's about food and drink, life and death. What does your father do, I ask? Sort of property development, she says. In town, new build flats. She looks up as her husband Bolage enters the room with a tiller. Bolage takes the nearly empty bottle of Palinka and swigs from it, finishes it. They're hanging them up, he says. The sky has cleared. Lengths of cold blue have appeared in the white, and there are even moments when faint shadows appear. The snow in the yard is loosening, and the sound it makes when you walk on it is different too. The icicles on the eaves of the house have started to drip quietly, making pitted holes in the snow underneath, and sometimes snow slides off the roof with a sudden sweeping noise and flops onto the snow already on the ground. The ringing hammers are still at work as the men finish putting up two A-frames made of metal tubes, each about two metres tall. Hooks on pulleys hang in the frames, and from these they hoist the two pigs as we stand watching on the steps of the house. In effortful teams, with Maria's father urging them on, the men hoist the pigs by their hind legs so that their snouts hang just short of the mud, or the male's snout does. The sow has been decapitated since I saw her last. Her smiling head is on a trestle table next to the log pile. The pigs hang, hind legs akimbo, upside down in the frames, while the men finish washing them. They are sponging them down, sponging off the layers of soot in water which blackly trickles and drips until the sallow skin underneath is revealed. There is one man I notice standing apart. Though I have seen him around, he does not seem to have participated until now. He is about 55, I would say and everyone treats him with a sort of deference. He is the knifeman, and he will now dismember the pigs. Taking his time, he stubs out his cigarette. He is wearing what looks like a painter's smock. As he prepares his set of knives, Maria offers him a palinka, which he silently accepts. Then he hands her the empty glass and steps forward, addressing himself to the headless, upside-down sow. It is very quiet in the yard. Most of the men have gone inside. The icicles dripping is the only sound as the knifeman makes his first long incision, which opens the animal's abdomen. When the pig's intestines plummet out, I am shocked at the size of them. They are shockingly huge, and though they are essentially grey, they have a strange pinkish sheen, a shine to their surface, an iridescence almost. They wobble weirdly on the ground. The knifeman wipes the blood from his hands and lights another cigarette. He saws away inside the pig with his cigarette stuck to his lower lip. 
stuff falls out. I am disgusted and fascinated and oddly numbed by what I am seeing. The knifeman tugs violently at something. Then his hands emerge, holding the pig's heart, I think. Again, it is surprisingly large, especially the pipes that stick out of it, and from which a trickle of blood is still draining as he puts it down on a metal tray. Attila has been in the house. Now he steps out again and says, We're going to eat. He tells me this isn't the main meal. That will be later, when darkness falls in the afternoon. We all sit down at the tables in the dining room, and the women start to serve the food. There is meat that was alive a few hours ago, fried blood and onions, fresh blood puddings, stuffed cabbages, and pickled cucumbers and cauliflower and green tomatoes. There are jugs of wine, and everywhere those plastic bottles of palinka. There seems to be no end to those. Attila is laughing at something that Bolash has just shown him, a painted pottery jug. It has a little figurine of a head-scarfed peasant woman sitting, with her hands on her hips astride the spout, so that whatever you pour from the jug seems to flow from under her skirt. It is a stunningly vulgar object, and it is passed around to sustained laughter. I am sitting next to the man in the petrol station uniform. I think his name is Sobolch. His face is intensely red, his eyes are bloodshot, and he doesn't seem to be able to follow what I'm saying. He must be exhausted. This is good, isn't it? I say again. The man nods, and Maria's father squeezes my shoulder, standing behind me with a two-litre plastic bottle deforming noisily in his other hand. He leans over and fills my shot glass to the brim. He is charging everyone for a toast. My eyes meet those of an elderly woman on the other side of the table as she spoons bloody onions into her nearly toothless mouth. More trays of meat are emerging from the kitchen. I see Maria laugh at the vulgar jug, and now her father is back in his place at the head of the table and shouting for silence. He is a frankly Chaucerian figure, our host, wearing what looks like an early 90s goalkeeper's outlandishly lurid kit, under a square haircut with a side parting too high up his head. In a voice that is as loud when he speaks as mine is when I shout, he starts to make a speech. It's that time of year again, he says, smiling raggedly like the moon. It's that time of year. Parts of the sow still hang in the A-frame. She is nothing more than meat now. She has lost any semblance of physical integrity, of whatever it was that once defined her as an individual thing. The knifeman is still at work. He was not at the meal, he is a paid professional and wants to finish his work as soon as possible and go home. People troop out of the house with plates and trays to take pieces of the sow inside where they are processed in the high-ceilinged room with white tiles on the walls. There are tables there and various machines for slicing, mincing and pounding the flesh. Old women sit on stools, intently whittling it with paring knives. A man turns the handle of a sausage maker while another feeds flesh into its zinc hopper. Another, the man with the wide moustache, is throwing handfuls of spices into a long wooden tub where a mixture of fat and shreds of meat are being vigorously mixed and kneaded by a hugely muscular man wearing a floral print apron whose whole forearms are stained red, not from blood so much as from the paprika which the man with the moustache is now dumping in. Meanwhile, the prime flesh, as it is dissociated from the animal it once was, is being laid out on a table in the yard. This is the proper meat, large pieces of muscle marbled with fat. I'm helping Attila and Bollage in his expensive jacket, 
providing unskilled labour. The knifeman hands us the meat as he detaches it from what is left of the sow, and we take it to the table where the duck owner and his property-developing sibling assess it. They decide which pieces will be salted and which pieces will be smoked, and mark them accordingly. Sometimes there is a dispute and they appeal to the knifeman who unhurriedly joins them and, taking the cigarette out of his mouth, settles it with an air of unanswerable authority. The sun is out, throwing sharp blue shadows and sparkling on the snow. The icicles hanging from the eaves of the house are dripping furiously now in non-stop streams. Puddles shine. The salting takes place in what was once the stable. There is a small tractor in there, an ornamental scythes hanging from roof beams and a huge plastic tub of salt. We take the meat there and hand it over to a man with a beard almost up to his eyes, who carefully buries each piece of flesh in the salt. Then we go back for the next piece. The meat is wet and it wets my hands. Soon, and despite the fact that the sun is shining, my hands, having been numb for a while, start stinging with cold. The pain is surprisingly intense. It is soon unbearable. It is almost frightening. I have to excuse myself and go into the house. Inside, in the toilet, I put my hands under the cold tap to thaw. The cold water from the tap feels warm. It is strange how positively warm it feels. And yet I know it is cold. It feels cold on my wrist. My hands are a sort of reddish blue and stingingly numb. Slowly the water caresses life back into them. When I can feel them again, and they have almost stopped hurting, I turn off the tap and look around for something to dry them on. There is an institutional dispenser of paper towels, coarse green towels like in a petrol station toilet, and I pull one out and dry my hands thoroughly. Outside I find the others holding trays of meat, big sides of bacon and the sow's four feet, among other things. You planning to give us a hand with this stuff, Bollage says. It's got to go to the smokehouse. Attila hands me his tray and returns for another. We walk up the yard past the pond and the poultry coop to a wooden shack on a brick base. It is about the size of an outhouse and Maria's father has just unlocked it. He opens the door. The interior is black and shiny and the many crossbeams that span it are strangely deformed. They get thinner in the middle. Some of them look in danger of breaking. They have metal hooks attached to them and he takes the meat from the trays as we stand in turn at the door and hangs it carefully on the hooks. It is already getting dark as we walk back to the house. The sun is behind the bare trees. Inside, in the tiled room where the meat is being processed, the lights are on. Neon tubes high overhead, giving everything a turquoise pallor. Trays of sausages and kolbas wait to be taken to the smokehouse. There is something sad about those trays, the living sow has been turned into the window display of a butcher's shop. Attila and I take the trays and follow Maria's father back out into the dusky yard, where the young male pig is still hanging, more or less intact if charred in places, in the A-frame. It is certainly colder outside now. The air is still and smells faintly of smoke. We wait outside the smokehouse again, while Maria's father hangs the sausages and kolbas in pairs on the sooty hooks. We'll smoke them tomorrow, he says, to himself more than to us, as having hung up all the meat, he padlocks the door. He stands there and inhales strongly through his huge horse-like nostrils, looking around at the flat, darkening land.
the empty fields that start on the other side of the chain-link fence already end in a dim, indefinite distance. The snow that covers them looks grey. In another direction, past the long yards of the other houses, a single line of weak streetlights has come on. As we walk back along the yard, the snow crunches under our feet again, as it did in the early morning, or even more so. In the deep twilight, I nearly slip on a patch of smooth ice. Watch out, Maria's father says. He shoves open the door of the house and he and Attila go in. As a result of nearly losing my footing, I'm a little way behind them and I stop outside the door for a moment, alone. The icicles on the eaves are silent. There are no lighted windows in the other houses that I can see, the houses disappearing now in the dark. It's as if nobody lives in the village anymore, as if the village has been entirely abandoned. That was David Saloy's Pig Killing Day. You can find it online at FT Life and Arts. Everything else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been Griselda Murray Brown and John Sonia. Our music is composed and produced by Fatum. We'll be back in mid January. We have loads of exciting guests and interesting debates lined up for you. So please join us then. Have a great holiday. <laughs>